Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. Hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Gavin Strange. Now, Gavin is director and designer at Ardman Animation. So think everything from Sean the Sheep to Wallace and Gromit to Chicken Run and so much more, actually, that they do there from commercials to games, CGI and everything. We'll hopefully dig into some of that. He's been there for, I think, 15 years or so, but he also runs a side project, Jam Factory. He's a keynote speaker. He's an author of the book, Do Fly. And he's also just back from Vienna, where he's been doing the closing talk at the Ford Festival, which brings creatives together from all over the world. So, Gavin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. What a wonderful intro. You make me sound like a smart, grown-up human. Thank you. <laughs> well, look, I think what we'll do is we often try and bring in questions from listeners from those people perhaps starting out in their careers. And one of them's perfect, so I think it'll kick us really off. In terms of your role now at Aardman, when we see their latest work on the screen, what have you actually done to bring that to life? That's a really nice question. I also really like that kind of question. There's like, what have you done? I really like that straight into it. But there's a really genuinely great question. So it depends really on what the project is. So like you kindly said, my role is a director and a designer at Ardman. So when there's new things on the screen, depends in what capacity. And that speaks to my job role that is quite flexible and fluid. Sometimes I am directing a thing. Sometimes that is a video game. Sometimes that is a short animation. But then like right now, just before we jumped on this call, I'm lucky enough to be working on the new Wallace and Gromit movie. And my role in that is there's a few sequences with a certain type of an aesthetic and I'm designing and animating motion graphics for that. So in the new Wallace and Gromit movie, I'll be credited as motion graphic designer and animator of a sequence. And so that's sometimes how that appears. Sometimes it's pure graphic design. I might help with the designs of things on screen or props or it's so varied. That's what I love about Ardman. There's always a variety of projects on the go. But there's also often a chance for those opportunities to be involved that are buried as well. And, and I'm very, very fortunate to be able to float around and to have a variety of things that make me always excited and entertained, but also just keeps creativity fresh. And you always want to do your best when you've got an opportunity like that. So when we see a scene, the one you're working on perhaps now on the screen, you're going to be part of having created the whole visual style of what we can see. Everything from lighting to background, linking it in story, but also actually moving the models as part of the stop motion process. Well, on like this occasion, like I'm definitely massively, absolutely a thousand percent not a stop motion animator. I'm a motion graphics animator, so I will do 2D After Effects motion graphics stuff. But if I'm directing something and I'm directing stop frame, then I'm a part of that team that brings that thing to life. But on huge, big, wonderful productions like the new Chicken Run movie or Wallace and Gromit, I'm just a very small part of a very big, exciting team. But to be close to that and to see that is so special. And I still 
despite working there for 15 years and loving animation my whole life, I still find it so magical and so exciting. And it just always sparks this feeling of joy when I see a literal nothing come to life all at the hands of the human beings. I find that really special. So to be even close to stop motion is exciting. And on, on this bit, this thing that I'm working on right now, that is pure motion graphics and it's a certain sort of computery aesthetic. But there are times where what you're seeing is an integration of graphics that I'm working on in integrated into the scene with stop motion as well. So there's there's lots of compositing there. There's 2D and stop motion and 3D and projection and all of that stuff. So even though sometimes the techniques Ardman uses are kind of classic, the execution is far from it. There's real sort of high-end technology involved in that as well. And it's about the right tool for the job at the right time. You know, that's exciting too. As you described, only a small cog in it. How big's the team that is pulling together the new Wallace and Gromit movie? The credits will be pretty massive, but sort of currently there's about 500 people at Ardman. That's not all on Wallace and Gromit, but you're definitely going to be in the 250, 300 people. I mean, by the end of it, the amount of people that have touched that film and have had, had a hand in it, had their fingerprints on it, is you're in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds because in pre-production when you're just consulting with smart people for story and ideas and it starts small but grows and grows and grows and then when you know as soon as you've stopped shooting as soon as you finish you're then into visual effects and compositing and editing and then you're into marketing and promotion and you know everything that comes with it it's a huge huge spectrum and and that's something that i really like to tell creative people who are interested in the film industry or the game industry just watch the credits, watch the credits on anything you enjoy and Google all those really confusing titles that you're like, on earth is that? Who could that be? And, and then you see hundreds of names listed on it and you don't know what that is. Now, that's really exciting. Now we've got Google at our fingertips to just ask those questions and fall down those rabbit holes. I think that's a really exciting thing to do to sort of just immerse yourself in something that you might not be familiar with. And amongst all of those hundreds of roles which are the ones closest to your work so which are the type of roles and colleagues which you are collaborating and coordinating with most of all that's a really good question i guess it speaks to my sort of dual role as designer and director um if i'm directing something then really the people that you work closely with are your producer so you know a director and a producer combo is really you need each other. You absolutely need each other to make this thing, whatever it may be. So that's your probably most important connection. But then if it's a linear film or piece of animation, you will have storyboard artists, writers, environment artists, conceptual artists, and character designers, animators, of course, who bring it all to life, lighters, directors of photography, set builders, set dressers, if you're building something for real. But the same job title applies if you're creating something 2D or in 3D. Editors, sound designers, musicians, artists, marketing managers, social media managers. Yeah, it's across a full spectrum. So even on something quite small, you will still end up working with a handful of people, even at its most tiniest. So that's A, really exciting because if you're open and just engaged with these people, you always come away from every single project learning something new whether it's a technique or whether it's just admiring how someone operates and deals with other humans i always love seeing and observing how people interact and go god that's 
that's great. You know, you work together in such a great way and you got to a solution in a really nice way, in a kind way, in a way I'd not seen before. That's always really inspiring as much as it is learning a new technique. So I know some people will listen to this, go, that's just my dream job. That's, that's just, I want to be doing that. And let's roll back the years then. And I don't know, you're at school, you're at college. What first triggered thoughts that started the pathway to where you are now? What did you like doing? What did you not like doing that made you think, I know a little bit about where I want to go? Yeah, growing up and at school, I knew I loved art. I really enjoyed even back then. So I'm 41. So I started secondary school in 1993 and left in 1998. And just then there wasn't really that many options for creativity. It was art. You would take art. Art was one of your classes, but that was it. And I liked it. I did like it. And I felt like it was kind of my most natural place to be, but I didn't excel at it. I wasn't like this natural born artist or someone who was at the top of the class. I knew I just really enjoyed it. I'd always drawn and I'd always copy my favorite TV cartoon characters or video game characters. So I'd always have sketchbooks and doodle books filled with copying and emulating that. But I remember just not having any clarity for what to do with that love and what to do with that excitement other than I love playing games. I love animation. I love watching cartoons. I love watching films. That was it. I just didn't know how to connect them. So when I knew that I finished school in 98 and I knew that I didn't want to go to university, I kind of knew that kind of early on. And I don't really have any strong reasoning why. I just couldn't really see that far ahead, but I knew I liked art and creativity. And so I ended up going to a local college um, called Leicester College. That's where I'm originally from, Leicester in the East Midlands. I kind of found a, a course and there was a graphic design course and I didn't even really know what graphic design was. I actually thought graphic design, and actually it is, was designing cereal boxes for some reason. Again, I have such a simple memory of all this stuff. I didn't have this expansive knowledge and understanding of what any industry did, really. I kind of understood that cereal boxes, I don't know why I gravitated to cereal boxes, but it was quite a simple, it's a box that everyone, most people have in their houses. It has color and typography and sometimes characters. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Someone must have to make that. And that, that was kind of the only thing I latched onto and thought, well, that looks fun because that's kind of like character design and art, but also it's not art. It's kind of, because I don't think I ever really understood how to express myself through art back being a teenager. So I wasn't this sort of misunderstood artist who would create wonderful paintings or write beautiful poetry, but kind of, oh, a bit of character design and cool lettering this is cool that, that as I understood it was, oh, that might be this thing called graphic design that I've heard. And so I got onto a, a two-year BTEC at Leicester College and did that. That was where I discovered I was truly a bit rubbish. <laughs> it's actually a, a long-running joke with my college friends that now I have a dream job and I'm very fortunate to work where I work and I really love what I do. But if you would have told Pastor Gavin then that I would go on to have a dream job, wouldn't even believe you for a trillion years because I just, again, it didn't come naturally to me at the beginning. I had to and continue to have to work really hard to push myself to get good work out. But it was there. It was finally going to a more sort of specific place, which had other like-minded people like me that really motivated that, okay, if I want to make good stuff, I've really got to put in 
the hours and the energy and commit to it and just keep making stuff, make something, realize it's not great and then make it again, make it again, make it again, make it again. So yeah, so that beginning there for deciding to go to uh, BTEC college was the first major like a switch of, oh, okay, this is a, could be a profession. And if I want it to be a profession for me, I need to get better. I really do. And was college life for you? Is it more work or more play? How did you find it? I think it was a bit of both. Again, college was really interesting. Again, because I didn't do the university thing. I don't have that comparison. But of course, it's leaving school where you called everyone sir or miss or missus. Then you're on a first name basis with your tutors. And it's that first real sense of education with a bit more freedom to it because you've chosen your courses. So that was also where my massive love of film and animation came in, because actually this was 98. There was an internet connection in the computer room at this college. So me and my now best friend, Johnny, who we're still best friends to this day, spent all our time actually not really looking at graphic design and looking at filmmaking and downloading trailers and videos and actually using that tools that we had to actually pursue these fantastical dreams of being writers and producers and directors because we'd found like a kinship in what we liked and it became this place where all the things that I love now really were cemented so my filmmaking school for me is dissecting music videos skateboarding videos because I was into skateboarding like auteurs of filmmaking like Spike Joan and people like that that were making stuff so it it was kind of a bit of everything. It was learning how to be a human being with other people, making friends, but at the same time, it really awakened something exciting in creativity for me as well. Of, oh man, just you can find inspiration in anything from the video games I love to the films I watch to the music I listen to. And that world just grew and expanded for me and really got me excited. That was like where the fire began. I could have a hand in all of this, not because I could do it professionally, but just there's nothing to stop me filling my brain with all these exciting, wonderful things. One thing I do think is a little unusual about you as a designer, as a creative individual, is you actually love and do a lot of keynote speaking. I've been lucky to work with a lot of great design and creative talent, and most of them, most of them by a long way, would shy a long way about, away from getting up on a stage. And you just, as I said in the introduction, you've recently been in Vienna, closing out a big a festival of creativity, Ford Festival there. Why public speaking and what do you get out of it? That's a really great question, Mark, because no one's ever asked that, actually. Um, it actually comes from back then, not being someone who was naturally gifted and had to really work at just discovering who I was, discovering what I was bad at, discovering what I was bad at but possibly could get better at, and discovering what maybe naturally came to me in a way, but I still had to work on. Because I feel really strongly about just knowing that I have this position that I love and I'm very proud of it. And that comes from 20 years of working hard and continually just trying to keep myself excited and motivated. I never want to squander that. I never want to forget how special that is and how fortunate this is. I am fully aware of what I do is not work. It is not laborious. It is not difficult. It is a joy. And I am so damn lucky to be able to call this a career, to be paid for it and to be able to support myself and my family with that. I never want to take that for granted. I never want to take those beginnings and of needing to do that work. And so I've kind of eventually, I started doing talks in 2008, purely by accident, because I ended up chatting to a fella on a train who works at an Apple store. 
um, Apple stores were quite a new thing back then. And this guy was in charge of events. And uh, we ended up talking about Apple Macs and geeking out. And I gave him my business card had back then. And he sent me an email saying, hey, you like talking, it sounds, of, about creativity. Do you want to come and do that in a store? And I went, okay. And I think, again, because I'd come from a place of not being at the top of the class, for someone like him to show me interest and to basically saying, hey, I like what you do. He believed in me and he believed in me to give me an opportunity. And because in the beginning didn't happen like that, I was like, wow, I just didn't. I just didn't come from a place of I would get those opportunities. So for them, for anything, and that's why I still feel the same way now. If someone thinks about you in that way, lemon egg, I really want to repay them by A, doing it, B, scaring myself to at least try it and just think, what a fortunate thing. And it's that cycle. I've had that same cycle since being 18, 19 years old of just loving it, trying it. Sometimes you try it enough, someone might notice and go, hey, do you want to try a variant of this or try something because of it? And I go, yes, because you never know where it's going to take you. So that has just always been kind of the motivation. And my talks in the beginning was so bad. That first talk was terrible. Pretty much my friends and family came and I was sweating buckets. I felt so physically sick. And I brought every single physical thing I'd ever made with me into the Apple store and put it all on the front table where they did their talks because I was so terrified that people would go, why, why should I listen to this person? Why is he just there? I was like, if I bring all the things, I can point to it and go, look, I made a thing. And it was a terrible experience. And I felt awful before and I felt so sick afterwards. But there was still something in it of what a joy to talk about what you love and maybe other people can do the same because they think oh, I too love that and never consider myself a, a speaker and so it's just always been that and now I, again I know how fortunate and lucky I am and not, kind of know what talks I want to give people won't um, come away with facts or figures from any of my talks at all and that's fine that's absolutely fine there are many speakers who can do that and um, but I just try and hopefully just share an enthusiasm and silliness really I like being silly and I like just trying to infuse that energy for what we're so fortunate in our creative industry to do, because why not? What joyous thing to be able to do. I think that it's a skill like any other skill that you can improve on and develop. It's also a thing that many people are terrified of tackling for the first time. And then when they do it, you sort of come out with a, actually, that wasn't completely awful. So if I did one a bit better... I'd be good at this. I, I remember as a, a teenager for many years, I wanted to be an actor. But after several years of getting roles like sort of third ferret in Wind in the Willows or chief servant to Julius Caesar with one line, I realized I wasn't going to go down that route. So my parents and I think my wife think that my public speaking now is just a sort of combination of a frustrated way of showing off and the failed actor. Absolutely. Also, that answer I gave before, that's all night. No, the truth is I'm actually just probably deep down want to be a performer because I've realized it is a way to do that. But again, that makes you the kind of speaker that you are, doesn't it? It kind of just lets you channel what I think, if that's something you really deep down want to be, I think you're going to do everything in your power to be as good at as possible. And one thing I did forget to say, sorry, is actually by anyone who's terrified of it, but if whether it's work or college or whatever it is that you're forced to do, you are forced to look back at what you have done and what you think about it. And there's not many opportunities in life because it's always about going forwards, going forwards, onto the next thing. What have you forgot to do? Do that task. But by building a talk, you're forced to look back and have a bit of introspection and have a bit of perspective. 
And that is never a bad thing for any human being to just reflect on choices they've made or why did you choose that color or what made you go down that path? There can be some quite big revelatory moments that you get from building a talk. So I think it's a very valid and nice thing to do, even if it does make you absolutely terrified. So one thing, an expression people will have heard is creative process. And it's one of those things you go, okay, what does that actually mean? So from the perspective of your work, do you have a creative process and approach you use? Or what does creative process mean to how you work? It's a great question. Um, I think I've noticed that I don't have like a broad, like a five-step plan that I always have that this is exactly how I do it. But I have noticed that having my passion project stuff in my own time under the name of Jam Factory is this cycle and this circle that I've really come to enjoy where during the day job, whether it's working at Armon or back then working for myself or working for a design studio when I got my first job, the just the, by doing creative work, commercial creativity, you end up using, sometimes it's so simple as you might need to choose a new typeface. And then I really like that. I use it for the piece of work and think, well, this is nice. That's a new style or that's a, oh, I like the people who make that typeface. I wonder what else they've got. And it inspires in my own time to just play and experiment a little bit more. But then because I've kind of expanded on what's happened during the day, I'm kind of more motivated and engaged and I might discover something new. And then that new thing, I try and then incorporate back into work. And then, so it's this cycle that kind of day feeds night and night feeds day. And sometimes it reverses and, and flips and switches. But I've kind of had this 20 year long momentum really of learning and growing and often a technique in my own time, a little noodle, a little experiment will will help me during the daytime. But sometimes I found it really valid that it's not just me being able to do a task or me being able to use a new piece of software. Sometimes it just means I'm hopefully someone who's just useful to a group full of creatives because I've seen something out there that, oh, that could be useful. Or I hear someone talk, oh, what about this storyboarder? Oh, I work with someone or I watch this thing. So I got really deep into the behind the scenes and I discovered that person. Hopefully you just become a useful person because you're just so immersed in the world. And, and by virtue of that, you become a useful person to other people in your team or your network. And I personally just haven't seen a downside to, I mean, I must be super annoying to work with and, I, and I'm so sorry to all my colleagues because I'm just always using too many exclamation marks in emails and just generally being being too bright and loud. But I haven't sort of in my career trajectory noticed any downside to that enthusiasm and to having this kind of cycle and circle and revolution of making, doing, trying, failing. It does mean though, I guess sometimes I am always just excited and, and those opportunities naturally don't always come to you. When we talk about the things we've done or the work we've done, we're talking about the successes and because otherwise you can't talk about it. But obviously, 99 times out of 100, they don't come to you or you're not the right person. And that means that if I'm always sort of so upped and amped and high, the lows can sometimes be lower because you're like, oh, I didn't get that opportunity. Oh, I wasn't right. But then to counter that, I guess because I'm used to the cycle, I go, okay, move on to something else then. Distract yourself in the sadness of not being able to work on that thing with, weren't you interested in that technique? And then off you go. So it's a process that works for me. Now, this is all sounding a bit too perfect, actually, Gavin. Both, both the description of the role, the passion, you clearly both put into it and get back from it. It can't have all been an easy ride from Leicester College to where you are now. So what have been the 
biggest screw-ups on the way that you've hopefully learned from, but the things that make you sort of almost shudder now and go, did I really do that? I don't, there's never fortunate enough for me. There's never been like one big clangor of a mistake, just a long series of just small mistakes. And I guess, I think as well, I think this is why I feel lucky and why I quite like the momentum is course correction all the time. If Because I'm so quick to move on to something else, it is, like I mentioned, those kind of missed opportunities or, I mean, often things maybe made me feel embarrassed now or me trying to seek out opportunities that I clearly wasn't ready for, like didn't have the full expertise, even thought I did just was like, I might as well go for it, put myself forward. And now there's just times and whether or not it's at Armin or before that clearly they didn't happen because I just wasn't ready. But I think, again, as the more I've done that, I've become more realistic in, I'll try for it. I will absolutely try for it, but also know that it might not happen and it probably won't happen and that's okay. And the only way to change that is to just do the thing more and more and more, gain more experience. So there's not been any one clangor. There's, I'm trying to think. I think it's such an important sort of topical theme, really, you touch upon that. We can all go through as you move our careers forward. You hit these points where you either have a real, oh, no moment or I've just been rejected. And it feels like the biggest thing in the world at that point in time. But then when you look back, there really haven't been that many that were that bad that they've affected everything going forward you pretty much move forward from everything, no matter what it feels like at that second in time. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think actually it's doing the talk stuff because I try and write a new talk every year. So as I've got older and I guess more experience in life and career, those thoughts and those observations become bigger and grander and you start thinking about your own mortality and your children and all of that stuff. And with that comes that kind of, oh, okay, well, like say, I know that I have to move forward. I just have to. I have to get up the next day. I have to make sure my kids have got breakfast. I have to get to work on time. So because you know it will march on anyway, I guess that it softens those emotional blows of when you didn't get opportunities. And I think I just also try and get through it and try and be a relentless optimist. But I sort of pride myself on trying to be a realistic optimist and an optimistic realist. I try and just aim for happiness and it might happen, it could happen, but also just always keep them back in mind that flip of, but realistically, there are many people who want this opportunity too. I might not be the best suited for it, so I might get it just because kindly something goes in my favor, but also I might not. So sort of trying to like develop this duality of emotions within me of like, don't let yourself get ground down, but also you might need to get down and that's a natural part of it. And kind of that flip-flop all the time has become something I try and work on and and kind of also just let myself feel something. If, for example, an opportunity doesn't happen, like I'll give you an example. This year at Aardman was released a Star Wars short film made for Lucasfilm by Aardman as part of nine other studios made a series of films called Star Wars Visions. And it was basically other studios around the world telling a Star Wars story. Sometimes, um, if is right, a opportunity is open to all directors. If a collaborating partner doesn't have a specific vision, they want Aardman, it can go to all directors. And as you can imagine, every single director was like, oh my 
taste would be incredible. Yeah. So of course I want a bit of Star Wars, please. Yeah. It was just like this buzz. And of course, being a massive fan myself, I was like, oh my days, oh my days, oh my days. I really, really want this. I really want this. I really, 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 really want this. And you know, when you just like, maybe if I just will it into existence, it will happen, which kind of isn't true. You got to put the work in. So I kind of, I knew my colleagues were brilliant character performers and comedic actors who can really create and write a pitch treatment really, really well. And so I'm going to have to go different, I reckon. I'm going to have to try and do a different tact. So I can't tell you my idea, but I went a little bit left field thinking, but maybe this will work. Yeah, no, it was just weird. It was just really weird. It's only now looking at the suite of films that got made and Armand's wonderful one was made by the brilliant crew, Armand and the director, Magda Osinka, who directed it. And it was her story. It would not have, have fitted at all. But when you get the rejection letter or email, whatever it is, I remember just my heart sinking so much. But it was like, just let yourself feel it for a bit. You've got to feel it. Just feel it for a little bit and then decide to move on and make something else. Yeah, you've got there a mixture of whether you might call them mantras or philosophies or just your ways of how you get forward. And, and I think part of that is people need to develop them that for themselves. But also, if you think about it, you've got some of those mantras or philosophies or approaches built inside you, but you've never really got around to articulating them. I, I talk to my colleagues about a couple of things like that often. One is about a desire to aim for perfection, but knowing you'll never, ever get there. And it's getting into a mental state that means I'm going to aim for perfection but having the appreciation you'll never achieve it. It's just a not, not a possible state to be in. Another is in relation to what you say about there, putting the pitch idea in, is a sort of 24-hour rule to be upset about something. And that's whether you've pitched and you've lost, or even sometimes if somebody who's just a fantastic talent in your team says that they're going on to do another opportunity, 24 hours to be absolutely gutted, and then you move forward with what's next. Don't dwell on it too much. That's not, I really like that time frame. That's good. I've never given it parameter. But like you say, like those parameters to be like, okay, no, it's fine. You're totally valid in that feeling of frustration. And you might have a little mode about yourself or whatever. And then, but it's time to get out because otherwise it creeps on and it becomes a problem, doesn't it? Now, one of the things that we often come across, particularly for those trying to get into creative industry, not only, but in creative industry, I think it stands out a bit more, is sometimes young creatives being asked to do a bit of work for free to sort of show themselves off to build a web page design this what are your thoughts around that is it a, a necessary step to demonstrate enthusiasm and skill or is it not really quite right of the industry is it a mix of the two a thorny one isn't it i guess maybe it's a mix of two obviously of course it goes without saying you don't want to be exploited and people shouldn't be exploiting other people um, for that just to get free work out of someone you know that's fundamentally not right you should always operate as with kindness and how would you want to be treated but then in the creative industry this is not um, arguing for it but I guess that's why I love passion projects because I built up and continue to build up a body of work outside of just what I cannot show with the day job so hopefully by just kind of natural curiosity have a portfolio of stuff that shows you what I could or could not do that almost perhaps would be offering that does that job already because, oh, okay, it's got a portfolio. 
and I guess there's a need for, oh, can this person do that? That is the why that request is there. I don't think it's actually a black and white answer. I think actually it's a little bit nuanced. It's context dependent, really. I know there's definitely been a rise of like uh, competitions with huge companies who clearly have big budgets to try. Hey, we're having a competition to get, we need this designing and you could win 50 quid. Clearly, if you were a studio, you'd get paid thousands, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, again, context is key. Yeah, I wouldn't say either it's a total shutdown either, because if it's a motivator for you and you're like, well, actually, I know I could do this and I could have real fun and show off my skill set. I could do that. I think it's really then down to the individual if they feel comfortable doing it and see it as a creative challenge rather than exploitation. So, yeah, so I think it's probably on a case basis and it has to be quite clear on for both parties, the person or company requesting that and the person feeling, the individual feeling like, no, I, I want to do that because I can show you. And just as a side note, working on a project at the moment, a new project and we're starting to crew up for it and uh, just looking for different people of different roles. And it just always strikes me of I've never, ever, ever looked at or requested a CV or where they worked or how old they are uh, ever in anything like I've ever been directing that uh, that you need to crew up for. I look at the work and go, well, that's fantastic. Look at that. And it doesn't matter when or why they did it. And sometimes the best people have their personal projects and also their client projects. And so it means I've just worked with all sorts of people all over the world of all ages and all stages in their career. They can do what you need for your projects. Fantastic. And that's a very lovely thing to do in the creative industries. It's maybe unique to that because of course it's context dependent, isn't it? Let's just touch upon an area I don't know what you think of at the moment, but AI. Threat, opportunity, mixture of both, embracing it, head in the sand. Where is it going to go in your in your industry? And is it being used at the moment in Ardman very much? So I have quite strong feelings about this. My position is creativity is such a wonderful thing. And for a human being to have an idea, to think about the possibilities and then to execute the end result, the end goal is just a part of it. Yeah, sure. It's what you see, but the minuscule decisions and lane changes and doubts and all of that is inherently human. I just don't know why you would want to deny yourself that. I really don't. If we are lucky enough to be in this industry, why would you take that away from yourself? Now, I know there are absolutely applications. And it's funny, the word AI as well, because I think it's probably incorrectly used. Someone the other day was actually saying that the majority of this stuff is machine learning, not artificial intelligence. So even that we're in this new era, aren't we, of what does AI mean? There's things in Photoshop that's been for years, um, content aware scale, which is just when AI is just analyzing pixels of, oh, okay, if you actually want to make it twice as big, I need to add a blue and a green and a yellow pixel there. You know, that's what you would call AI as well, but we don't think about it. It's just a tool. So I'm kind of there for tools that replace mundane tasks that don't take away your creativity, like timesheets. Man, if I could get an AI that would do my timesheets for me, please go ahead, do my taxes. Cool, man. I literally couldn't care less that's using its computational brain to do complex things that and leave me more time and freedom to create, to have those decisions. So I feel really strongly in that. 
and it's obviously not going away. I am a little bit burying my head in the sand, a little, because I couldn't even guess where it's going. But I really just don't vibe with a totally AI generated script or story or like, no, I want that made by humans. I want that human and that team of humans whose lives and loves and loves and hates and decisions and history and location, all of those things like get channeled and funneled into what you eventually see. And and in such microscopic ways, I don't want uncaring machine with zero empathy to scrape data from the internet and try and assimilate assemble a a facsimile of a creation it just doesn't have soul and i know i know i'm very much starting to sound like a old man yells at cloud like in the same way that i'm sure photoshop killed the industry of typesetters and and print setters this feels different that was an evolution of tools we've now having something that's like hey you don't need to have the idea adobe yesterday announced their text to vector graphics tool in Adobe Illustrator, which is something that I use all the time, it's one of my favorite tools within that. And I use shapes and lines and grids and things to create vector artwork. But now Adobe themselves have created a tool where you don't actually need to do the middle bit of the work. You just type owl and it will make you an owl in vector graphics. I find that perplexing. Why is the company who give you the tool want to get rid of you, the person in the middle using the tool? I'm not into it. So I don't know where it's going to go. Sometimes it's usual if you need to make an an organic pattern in like, at least Adobe kind of uses its own pre-licensed stock imagery. It's not scraping the web. So at least there's some sort of control. But for me, I love creativity. I love every bit of it. Even the stuff that makes you frustrated and I don't have any ideas. My first thought won't be, I'll run to artificial intelligence and get it to help me. I want to struggle through that myself. So that's probably very stubborn and silly, but I'm happy. I think it's also a watch this space sort of piece, isn't it? If there's going to be a contest, there's going to be a bit of a fight within elements of the creative industry. And I don't think human creativity can ever be fully replaced. So if there are some things that might be made a bit easier, a bit faster, businesses out there to make profits will find ways of using that. Yeah, that like I said, that is an absolute, like there will be, People that go, no, I don't want to hire a design team. I just need X, Y done. But that would, that is and will always happen in any way. And maybe actually, in turn, gives a higher love and respect for human-made creativity. I, I don't like that divide, really. That feels kind of crazy and sort of like very Skynet-y. But I say... But hopefully quality will always rise to the top and quality and creative work will hopefully always need the humanity inside it as well to make sense of it as well just human beings desperately need to make sense of their own world and themselves and computer's not going to do it for you it might make you think but you empathize and connect with what other human beings have made that's why stories are the way they are because you can connect with it so yeah i remain optimistic he says so that's sort of looking to the future then i just want to finish looking a bit to the past really that if i present you now with the magic of the time machine and you can go back and address your 20 year old younger self at Leicester College what might you say to yourself then about look do more of this and avoid doing that bit what are the lessons you've picked up you might give back to yourself I mean first of all I'd probably say don't use so much hair gel stop doing that stop 
put in your hair and curtains because you'll eventually lose your hair. So don't do that. Do you know what? I don't think I would say anything. I kind of feel it's so important to make all those mistakes. Like I say, there are not really any remarkable ones to tell you, but that's because I was thoroughly unremarkable in my career and my beginnings. And it took and it's taken 20 years of tiny readjustments of learning to be better, needing to be better. I wouldn't change that course. I really wouldn't, whether or not I'd have this job at Ardman or not. I think it's so important to kind of mess it all up and to go that path. I mean, maybe I'd say I wish I was more empathetic and self-aware and uh, open and kind to other people. I don't think I was unkind, but in my 20s, hopefully that's not a, a new thing. You're kind of selfish. You're finally your own human and you become all about you. I think that it would be lovely if I would have been more attuned to other people's needs, maybe, and to just been more aware. But again, I feel like I'm aware of that now. And that maybe had to be the path. I had to go through that to go, blimey, you're a ding dong when you're in your 20s. And hopefully I'm less of a ding dong now. And I'm fortunate enough to have a loving family and a, a brilliant wife and partner and my two young children and a loving support network. So yeah, I kind of feel like I'd love to be an observer. It would be super, super, super cringy. And because you, everything matters so much and you pour your heart and soul into it, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a thing that you love or a technique or whatever. But again, you have to be that person to then gradually get more perspective, more life experience. So yeah, I think because otherwise you kind of, you're waiting for the magic bullet, aren't we? I think definitely I possibly may encourage if I was telling someone else to be open and willing to just ask people questions and especially in this age of, of dropping someone an email or a message, you can learn so much. And people, I think, generally are very flattered. If you reach out to someone, I think they're actually really flattered to be able to help you and talk about what they've done. And if I speak to people after talks or I get emails, um, I know already they're the people that are going to make it because they have become already like, right, okay, um, Gavin is maybe doing something I want to do in my future career. I'm going to go and talk to that human. I never did that. I was too scared. I'm still quite shy at talks now. Like I'm great on stage, but actually if I've seen another speaker, I'm a little bit nervous. I think I won't bother them or I don't want to. But then the people who do come and ask me questions, and it's not all about being an, an extrovert either. People who if anything, even more so, I meet people after talks or conferences and they're, they're quite introverted, but they've still found that courage to go and speak to that person they've never met, who's just talked on stage for an hour, talking about neon pink and being very loud and very silly. Uh, they've come over and shared a part of themselves and asked a question. I absolutely know they're going to make it because they've already sort of unlocked that inner fear of themselves of I'm going to pursue a path and I'm going to fill my brain with knowledge. Um, and that starts by talking to other people. So maybe I hope I would try and unlock that in myself a little bit more. But I always brings a smart when you have those conversations because it's like you're absolutely doing it. I think that's so right. Ask the questions, make the connections. And I sympathize a lot with that. I love being on stage, doing some talking and then get down the crowd afterwards and I'm quiet and in the corner and feeling actually, uh, I'm feeling so reserved and shy at that point. And so you sort of switch, but for younger people there in the audience saying, I want to meet you. Can I have a coffee? Can we talk? Most people will say yes. And Gavin, I think, look, I've loved 
talking to you. We could go on and on for this, but, but mustn't today because it's just been both fascinating, but also hugely positive to hear more about not just your work, which of course is, is brilliant, but your approach and your philosophy with a small p in there. And I think, you know, some of the things I've taken out from this, what you said right at the beginning, watch the credits, look at all the roles, Google what those roles actually are. Think about the different roles that actually go to create a huge piece of content, a movie or something like that. Also, what you said about you've got to put in the hours and energy. This is not going to land on your plate. Make stuff, make more stuff, break stuff, have failures, and then learn from it and make that again. And also what you said about course corrections, that they're just inevitable. You're going to have to do them. So know that they will be coming your way and don't be too shocked or surprised. Make the course correction and move forward from there. So that and so much more to take away from this conversation. But one thing I would like to finish on, as we do with a lot of these conversations, is we want to keep passing this baton of careers information, careers stories and insights on. So is there one other person from any walk of life who you think, actually, I know whose career you should unwrap because it would be interesting? Who might that be? That's a great question. I think actually there's so many wonderful human beings, but I think actually someone I would love for you to unwrap is a wonderful human called Sarah Corbett. She's called a craftivist and she uses craft for activism. We met her quite a few years ago, a talk series in West Wales called The Do Lectures. And she is a fascinating person who is fascinating for many reasons. Of course, she's an activist and she's trying to inspire change within industries for, for better treatment of humans, the climate, many other things. She just believes in making change. But the fact that she, A, does it with craft, so does it with creativity and trying to find ways, trying to find ways to unlock that. But also, she's a huge introvert. She's a massive introvert. She actually hates public speaking. Gives public speaks, gives public talk. That's why she's a better speaker than me. Public speaks. She's a massive introvert. And she sort of says that she just hides both before and after talks because she finds it so overwhelming. Yet she so knows that that is a part of the path that she has to walk to affect change, but is also trying to find it an introverted way. How do you affect change without being this, hey, look at me, here's what you should do right now. She's such a kind person and she's the sort of person you know that makes you want to be a better human. Like she's that good. Me and my wife are big fans of her. She's great. So Sarah Corbett is one to watch. She is a joy. Brilliant. Gavin? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for unwrapping your career. It's been brilliant to talk to you and have you on the show. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.